You know, it's amazing. As full as this room is, you guys quieted down in a hurry. And I wasn't ready. Good morning. Good morning, good morning. Little trivia. Anybody like trivia? Little trivia. Just, just, just one, one question for you this morning. A little trivia question. Who knows uh, what is the longest running game show in television history? How did you guys know? That is so impressive to me. It's The Price is Right. Yeah. So this show, so here, here's what The Price is Right is to me. Um, now, I graduated high school in 2005 with perfect attendance, um, which uh, actually marked for me 10 years of perfect attendance. I hadn't missed a day of school since second grade. Uh, and, and so the, the part of the reason for that is because all you could do if you missed school in second grade, for me at least, in the 1990s, um, all you could do was you would stay home and mom made cinnamon toast. You, you drank warm 7-Up. Anybody else have the warm 7-Up medicine cabinet? I mean, that, that fixed everything. Um, and you would watch The Price is Right. Now, what's fascinating to me about the show, it started in 1972. It'll be 52 years old this year. Yeah. And the whole premise of this show that's made it 52 years on television, the whole premise of the show is that people are bad at judging what something's worth. That's like, if that weren't true, there would be no show. Apparently, it's so rare that someone would be good at the game that one guy actually got banned from the game because he was too good at it. You can look it up. This guy's name is Ted Slauson, Theodore Slauson. He had a natural affinity for numbers, and he watched the show every day, and he had identified certain items that came up over and over and over again, and he just had this savant ability to memorize the values of these items. So when he got a chance to come on the show and compete for himself, he cleaned house. He got two, not one, but two uh, of, the, of the guessing games right to the dollar. They banned him from the show for life, accusing him. Here was, here was the, the charges against him. The accusation was what they called extreme analysis. You can, you can see, this, is a whole, this has all been turned into a documentary. You can see the whole story. It's called Perfect Bid, The Contestant Who Knew Too Much. We are bad at judging what something is worth. This is why it's so challenging to buy things on like Craigslist or Facebook Marketplace because you're never sure if you're getting a deal or if you're getting had, right? We're bad at judging what something's worth. So what if you had an opportunity to trade your comfort for Christ-likeness? Would you do it? Do you consider Christ-likeness valuable enough to sacrifice your comfort to have it? Or have you inaccurately assessed the worth of this invitation? Good morning, Resurrection Church. 
I'm grateful you chose to spend your Sunday morning with the family. If you brought your Bible, open that bad boy up to Matthew chapter 4. If you haven't picked up on this yet, I I like the bring your own Bible thing. You can get it on the screens, and I'm not mad at you if you do, but I I think you should get very comfortable with handling one of these. Um, I I think that that's just a good thing. And so, and I I want you to see in front of you, uh, because here's, here's what I think is, I think that there's a way... Uh, that if you're just relying on the screens all the time, if everybody did that, I mean, I could slip stuff in there, right? I I mean, I wouldn't. I wouldn't. (laughs) But it exposes you to risk. Uh, We're going to dig into this in just a second. This year, our approach to Easter, we're we're beginning today what's going to be a Lenten series for us. We don't often park in Lent, but this year we are, uh, because uh, we just kind of got this sense that the Lord was inviting us into something. And what we want to do for the next seven weeks is we want to look at Matthew 4, verses 1 through 11, because this is Jesus's 40-day temptation in the wilderness. And so we've called this series a 40-day journey. We're going to take for the next seven weeks, the next 40 days, each week, we're going to take this text, Matthew 4, 1 through 11, and we're going to hold it like a diamond. And we're going to slowly turn it, appreciating the color and the clarity and the luster and the beauty that comes out as we turn this just ever so slightly to approach the same text from a slightly different angle. What we're going to look at in Matthew 4, 1 through 11 is going to be the character and the behavior patterns of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We're going to behold these patterns that we might hear and accept and receive an invitation into Christ-likeness. This is the goal. We want to be more like Jesus. Amen? So today we begin this journey. And as we set out on our 40-day journey, we want to observe the character of Christ in his wilderness temptation. And what we're going to see today is this. If a transformed character costs your temporal comfort, the price is right. If a transformed character costs your temporal comfort, the price is right. You will never regret giving up temporal, temporary comfort for the sake of your sanctification. You'll never regret giving that up. That has a multiplier on your life and will pay dividends over the course of your life. So, here we are in Matthew 4. I want to invite you to stand on your feet. This will be the first time we're reading this text, this series. We will become very familiar with this text uh, over the next seven weeks, but we begin it this way. Matthew 4, 1 says, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again 
the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you fall down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Before you're seated, let me pray for us. Father, hallowed be your name. In our gathering, uh, in these people, your people, hallowed be your name. Uh, In our hearts and in our lives, hallowed be your name. May we set your name and your fame and your renown and your reputation apart as particularly holy. Father, you have invited us to a seat at your table that we might feast You said in this text, Lord, that we don't live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from you. And so we come to your table this morning to feast. And you tell us, Jesus, that we are blessed if we hunger and thirst for righteousness. And you pair that blessing with a promise because we will be filled. And so we come to your table hungry this morning, asking you to fill us. Would you satisfy our hunger Would you teach us from your word? Would you shape and mold us into your image? We ask these things in the name of Jesus Christ. And all God's people agreed and said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. We're going to make ourselves at home in verses 1 through 3 this morning. The risk we run as a preaching team in a series like this is that we'll just step all over each other. And so I've really got to be dialed in this morning to the best of my ability, but I've got to do some introductory work because this is the first time some of us are probably ever hearing this text. And so I've got to do some introductory work to kind of orient us to what we're reading here. But the first angle that we're going to use to approach uh, our 40-day journey is we're going to look at a pattern in the... Uh, we're going to look at this this discipline that he submits himself to. Uh, And what we're going to explore today is that Jesus fasts. Jesus fasts. Simple a concept though that may be. Uh, Today we're going to observe that Jesus fasts, and this should interest us. This should make us curious, because I think that there's a way that our um, presuppositions about fasting, what it is and what it does, are challenged by the reality that Jesus fasts. Because we might be inclined to think that fasting is a way that we can hunger strike God into answering our prayers. Jesus doesn't need to do that. He is God, right? We might think that fasting is is a a means by which we draw closer to God. And and while that's not untrue, Jesus doesn't need to be any closer. He can't be any closer to God because he is God. And so why does Jesus fast? Now, contextually, just if you're reading through Matthew's Gospel devotionally, and you've got to keep in mind that the Bible, when it's written, doesn't have chapters and verses. That is a modern invention. And it's super helpful, but sometimes the the chapters, the verses, and even the headings can break up a text in a way that actually rob us of something beautiful about the the flow of a story. Like, if, if more easily make certain connections... Uh, Again, I I recognize that they're helpful, but if the headings and the chapters and the verses weren't there, some connections would be more obvious to you. So in Matthew 3, Jesus shows up at the Jordan River to be baptized by John the Baptist, and as he's pulled up out of the water, we read this. 
Behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God. Who did he see? Just making sure you're paying attention. Descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son. What did the voice say? Just want to make sure you caught that. With whom I'm well pleased. So we see the presence of the Holy Spirit and the affirmation of the Sonship of Christ in this narrative. Again, like literally right here at the end of Matthew 3. Now, so if you've got a paper Bible, just take a look at where those verses are in Matthew 3. There is no break between Matthew 3, 16 and 17 and Matthew 4, 1. It's, it's what comes next. Then Jesus was led by the into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. So the spirit who rested now leads. You see, there, there's a connection here. The spirit was present at the baptism and present in the temptation. The spirit who rested on Christ now leads Christ into the wilderness. There was a, an affirmation and now there is a... After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, if you are the son of God, now, what did we just read in Matthew 3.17? This is my beloved. What's being challenged by the tempter here? If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. So the Spirit who rested now leads, and the identity that was affirmed is now questioned. Now, pertaining to the leading of the Spirit, like, I, think, I think we, as, as New Testament believers, like we all yes and amen to this, right? Uh, the Spirit leads. And I don't think we take issue with that, but I think a little bit we take issue with an implication of how the Spirit leads here in Matthew 4. Right? Like, it's not that He leads. We like that He leads, but does it have to go this way, Spirit? Like, it's fine for Jesus to be led this way, into the wilderness, away from comfort, away from people. I think, we can, I think we can rightly connect the leading of the Spirit and the fasting that Jesus has just kind of taken on to himself. This season of preparatory fasting as he prepares himself for what will be a three-year ministry that will culminate at the cross the very cross on which your salvation gets purchased, the cross, the cross which cost him great suffering and great discomfort, the season of his life that is marked by suffering and discomfort begins in the wilderness with what? Suffering and discomfort. And the spirit is to blame. Spirit, do you have to lead like this? Like maybe in Jesus' story, sure, but what about me? I don't want to... I don't want to step on this too much because we've got a whole sermon dedicated to Jesus is led by the Spirit that comes later in the story. But I think we have, to, we have to really inspect our own hearts as we read that Jesus is led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And how does the devil first test Jesus? Never mind the stones into bread piece. What's the opening of his accusation? If you are the Son of God. He challenges what was said just a few verses, and for Jesus, just a few days earlier. Jesus had heard, this is my beloved Son. And now he hears, if you are the Son of God. 
there's something here of the playbook of the enemy. Something here of the playbook of the enemy. There, there's a type of, did God really say that we should pick up here, right? Uh, almost as if Jesus in his wilderness temptation is recapitulating, reliving the story of Adam and Eve in the garden. Just a little bit. Just a little bit. On a much larger scale, he's reliving the story of Israel in the wilderness, but that's for a later sermon in the series as well. What's challenged here is, in part, Jesus' identity, but on a much larger scale, because Jesus just heard from God in a voice from heaven, this is my beloved son. And so what's questioned here, what's challenged here is actually not as much the identity as it is pride. Jesus, are you proud enough to beckon to the voice of the tempter to assert your authority to prove who you are? Does Jesus have something to prove? Does he have to prove himself to the tempter? Here's the underlying question is, will he use his power for self-satisfaction or for self-sacrifice? Will he use his divine power to alleviate his own suffering or to endure suffering for the sake of a greater purpose? This has been true in my life over and over and over again, and I want to share it with you. Uh, I think that this is one of those realities that once you're kind of in tune with it, you come to see it coming. And maybe, here's what I think, is I think many of us in the last year, uh, you guys have heard me talk about this if you've been coming to Resurrection. We had a ferocious spiritual attack against this church uh, in the last year. Just ferocious. Um, where, and it was with just these unexplainable circumstances. It hit me in my own home. I mean, like myself and members of my family have had to go to counseling for some of the things that have come in the last year. I mean, it, it has been, it, it was rough. Um, but here's, here's, the, here's the underlying principle, the nugget of truth. And I think if you grab a hold of this, there's great comfort in the midst of that kind of suffering. And here it is. Every spiritual advance is met with a spiritual attack. This has been true over and over again in my life. Uh, when I stepped into full-time ministry years ago, I stepped out of corporate and into full-time ministry, it came with an attack. Yeah. And, I, and I could put a name on it. Uh, when I started teaching the Bible at Yorkville Christian High School years ago, it came with an attack. And I could put a name on it. I, it, took me, it took me months of hindsight to look back and say, whoa, that, that was a spiritual attack. I didn't see it right away. When I stepped into the lead pastor's shoes here at Resurrection Church, like, do you have an idea how big Ed Dopel's shoes are? <laughs> it, came, it came with a spiritual attack. It came with a, Every season of spiritual advance is met with a spiritual attack. And when you come to expect that, it, it better enables you to weather the storm. I just had a guy who was talking to me very recently about a recent step he had taken in his faith, and no sooner did he get home than the spiritual attack started. And that should be a type of evidence to you that you're doing something right. Amen. Because when you step forward in faith, you will be pushed back by fear. 
When you start taking your faith seriously, your enemy starts taking you seriously. And the more seriously you take your faith, the more seriously your enemy will take you. And so here's the reality is if your life has never experienced spiritual attack, that should open your eyes to some deficit in your faith walk. Like if you've never endured any sort of spiritual attack, that should open your eyes to a type of deficit in your faith walk that makes you ask the question, what am I not doing? Because if I'm not a target for the enemy of my Lord, then I must not have made myself a target by failing to take my faith seriously. Now, here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that it should be like that all the time. It comes in waves. It comes in waves. But, but if, if you would say that your Christian life has been relative, relatively smooth sailing, I would just... Either you're not attributing belongs and you think that your wife or your husband is just out to get you or your kids are wiling out for no good reason. Or, or... Um, or you're just kind of coasting. And, and I've said this before, in the, in the Christian walk, there is no coasting. It's, it's, you don't think of it like you're riding a bike, think of it like you're on a river, right? And you're either swimming or you're floating with the current, and the current is taking you somewhere you don't want to go. There, there is no treading water in the Christian walk. You're either swimming against the current, current or you're being pulled by it. But this this reality that uh, every spiritual advance is met by spiritual attack, this reality is why fasting is so necessary in this story. I, I told you earlier that if a transformed character costs you temporal comfort, the price is right. The price is right. That's a, that's a good bargain. Now there's a sense in which, this actually came up a couple Wednesdays ago, I love this question. Um, Jesus, could Jesus have given in to temptation? That's such a good question. Such a, such a brilliant question because um, in his divine nature, he's perfect. But Jesus is the God-man and he is both divine and human. And in his human nature, he feels the full weight of temptation. And so could he have given in to sin? Yes. Would he have given in to sin? No. Because constitutionally, his divine nature overcame the temptation that rose against him. It's a brilliant question. Because Jesus is God, his nature is already perfect. But because Jesus is human, his nature has to be trained and ruled over let me just prove it to you with Scripture. The author of Hebrews says it this way. For it is fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. His human nature had to be trained. He had to be tempted. Legitimately tempted. I think this is a hard thing. Like if you've just read through this story and haven't paused to think about the fact that Jesus endured temptation like you've missed the big tension of the story because if if jesus isn't actually drawn to do the things that are being laid before him it's not temptation like if there's not a moment where he actually thinks that it might be a good idea to turn these stones into bread there's no temptation 
Like you can't, here, you can't tempt me with liver and onions. Right? Like doesn't, doesn't check the box for me. If you like that, cool. Like, like liver king's your guy, I, I get it. That, cool. I, you can't tempt me with liver and onions. But you can tempt me with a steak. Uh, mid-rare with a good crust. You tempt me with that. It's got to be a legitimate temptation in order for him to be what the book of Hebrews calls our empathetic high priest. Here's how it reads. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us in our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Pay attention because the order here is important. Jesus is led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, and then... So he's in the wilderness, right? Like, step one, Jesus is in the wilderness. And then after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, 40 days, 40 nights in the wilderness, fasted. He was hungry and the tempter came. Again, part of the playbook of the enemy is that he's gonna approach you when you're weakest. Fellas, don't think for a moment that, that it's without cause that you are the most tempted on your devices after hours, after your brain has been running all day long, like you're intellectually exhausted and you, you sit down to unwind and so you open something and you're scrolling through and just kind of like mindlessly trying to wind down and then you see something. The enemy comes at you when you're weak, comes at you when you're vulnerable. And in this case, Jesus, who is invulnerable, has to make himself vulnerable in order for there to be a legitimate temptation that the enemy could bring to him. When he was hungry, the tempter came. For clarity, the Baker Encyclopedia of the Bible defines fasting in this way. I think this is helpful. Spiritual fasting entails setting aside activities as well as reducing the intake of food and replacing these activities with the exercise of prayer and preoccupation with spiritual concerns. So there's two very key components to fasting. There's deprivation and there's replacement there's deprivation and there's replacement if there's deprivation with no replacement it's not spiritual fasting if you're not filling that time you would be filling your face with something else filling that time with prayer filling that time with worship filling that time with bible reading you're just starving yourself you're not fasting we take time away from food to dedicate that time somewhere better. So Jesus goes to the wilderness, spends 40 days fasting. The enemy comes, challenges his identity, tests his pride, tempts him with bread. And even for Jesus, this is necessary. He had to be tempted because his human nature has to be brought into subjection, into submission. He had to exercise self-control. And in growing in self-control, in developing in this character trait, in demonstrating his authority over his physical desires, fasting was his chosen instrument. And I think this is weird for us. Because what is fasting? It's deprivation, right? It's taking away. This could seem backwards because we don't pursue self-improvement by taking something away. We most generally pursue self-improvement by adding something in. Read this book. Listen to this podcast. 
try these three, five, 10, 28 steps. Uh, drink a gallon of water every day. Wake up with the sun, right? Like, like we've got all these, like put a squeeze of lemon in your water or like what, you know, like we've got all these things that we add in to try to improve ourselves. But in this case, Jesus pulls something away. Because unfortunately, the improvement that we need won't come by self-help, but by self-humbling. And fasting is a humbling thing. Because when you fast, you're, you're weak. When you fast, you're needy. When you fast, you're sensitive. Sensitive to offense. Sensitive to frustration. You feel like you're outside of your control. That's why we call it hangry, right? Like, like I'm, I'm not me. You know, like it's the Snickers commercials. You're not you when you're hungry. You have a Snickers. Um, but here's the reality is that is the truest version of you. When you are unaided by comfort, that's where you actually see who you really are. And, and I've been telling you that if a transformed character costs you temporal comfort, the price is right. Again, don't lose sight of this. The Lord submitted to fasting and temptation, suffering to prepare himself for a season of ministry that would be culminated by suffering for your sake and mine. Now, if we were to follow Christ's example in his teaching, we won't add something in in pursuit of self-improvement. We'll pull something away. Jesus assumes that you will fast. Let me read it to you in Matthew 6. Matthew 6, 16 through 18. And when you fast, do not look... Now, again, just already. And if you fast, no. When? When you fast. Because I know you'll do it, right? Like, like if you're following me, like if, if you're a Christian, you want to be like Christ, of course you'll do this, right? And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. I don't have this in my notes, but that word for hypocrites is a lot of fun. Uh, it's the Greek word for uh, a man in a one-man show who uh, wears masks. So you've seen like the drama logo of the, the laughing mask and the crying mask. Uh, it, it's actually, it's a picture of the Greek word hypokritos. Uh, and it's, it designates a, a character in a one-man show who changes masks to designate which character he's playing at that time. Um, that's what it means to be a hypocrite. You're putting on a performance. Do not look gloomy like the performers, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may, may not be seen by others, but by your Father who's in secret. And your Father who sees in secret, what's he going to do? He's going to reward you. So if we're going to fast for godly purposes, it has to be done with godly motives. We shouldn't look gloomy. We shouldn't disfigure our faces. Doing so would make us performers, hypocrites. We would simply be putting on a show. That's not fasting. It's performance. Instead, Jesus says, anoint your head and wash your face. Essentially, look put together. Be presentable. Don't, cause, uh, don't, don't call any attention to yourself for your fast. Let it be between you and God. And if we do, if we keep our fast between us and God, what's going to happen? He will reward you. 
how can we expect God to reward us? Jesus doesn't specify. But here's the question that I want to ask. Do you trust that the giver of every good gift will reward you with far better than the thing you gave up for his glory? Can't he do it? Can't he do it? I've seen this in my life over and over and over again. One of the very first things that happened to me when I became a Christian was my pastor challenged me to give up secular music for seven days. He said, hey, take seven days, set aside all your secular music, only listen to Christian music for seven days. I was like, okay. Uh, Challenge accepted. So I did. Set aside secular music seven days. I listened to nothing but Christian music. And I kept that going for three years. I didn't listen to any secular music in the car, no secular music on my, at the time we had iPods. I don't know if you guys remember those. Uh, I, I listened to only Christian music for three years because it did something in me. And in that time, just in those seven days, the Lord opened my eyes to see who played music that I liked that was God-honoring. The Lord gave me better for what I gave up for him over and over and over again. And don't don't forget that fasting is not just giving something up. It's filling that time with something better. And the time that you take away from eating, you now dedicate to pursuing the Lord. It's, It's filled with prayer. Over and over in Scripture, prayer and fasting come as companions. Now, here's my guess. My guess is that you pray. My guess is that you have a pattern of prayer. But do you ever fast? These are two of the most humble spiritual disciplines because they're not impressive to anyone. Fasting and prayer are between you and God. No one, if you're doing it right, Jesus says, no one will know it but you and him. So when we fast, and we should fast, we should have a purpose for our fasting. Something that we're committing to pray for. We don't want to approach it aimlessly. We want to approach it with a purpose. We should pair our fasting with prayer and other spiritual disciplines. We should have something specific about which we want to pray and our hunger should be, I don't know if you guys remember this, um, there was a, a practice, my, my, my parents would tell me to do this, uh, tie a ribbon around your finger. Yeah. And is that land for anybody? Yeah. And, and what you do is you tie a ribbon around your finger when you want to remember something. And when you look at that ribbon around your finger, it should call to mind the thing you want to remember. Um, fasting is the ribbon around your finger that reminds you of your discipline of prayer. And so every time your stomach grumbles, you say, oh, I'm hungry. Wait, why am I hungry? Oh, because I'm fasting today. Why am I fasting today? Oh, because I wanted to commit this day to pray for my wife, pray for my husband, pray for my future spouse, pray for my kids, pray for my church, pray for my neighbors, my unsaved loved ones. Our hunger should remind us of our purpose and move us to pray. And here's what I found to be true in my life. Again, um, the Lord The Lord saved me in 2006 at a Pentecostal church where fasting was commonplace. It was just one of those things that we did. I found myself in a pattern of fasting early in my faith walk. And I would fast one day a week, every every week from sunrise to sunset. And to be honest, 
I didn't know why I was fasting. Nobody taught me to fast with a purpose. And so I would just kind of endure. And, and, I, and I thought, I actually thought this, that if I screwed up and if I just like, if I wasn't thinking, I went to work and someone had, you know, something and I, and I grabbed it. Because you know, you're just hungry, you're not thinking, you just kind of grab it and pop it. I thought that like God would like be upset with me about that. I thought that he would make me sick in my body. Like, I, I had this really wrong idea of what fasting was. I approached it very legalistically. But I committed to that pattern and that discipline for a long time. I knew that this was just what we do. And, and I think that as we approach the Lenten season and we talk about fasting, I think that's the pattern that we're most often considering is uh, on Fridays, our Roman Catholic friends... Uh, or rather, uh, during Lent, our Roman Catholic friends abstain from meat except on Fridays when they eat fish. And if you ask them why they do it, they don't have a, most of them don't have a, an informed answer. Now, it's, it's actually, it's a wonderful practice if you understand why you're doing it. But if you don't understand why you're doing it, then it's, it's you're, you're actually, all you're doing is you're inflicting yourself with suffering with no end goal in mind. And that's what I was doing. When my dad got sick, I fasted for 14 days and pleaded with God to heal my dad. And then my dad died. I thought that I could hunger strike God into answering my prayers, and it doesn't work that way. Fasting doesn't change God. It changes you. This is why I've been telling you that if a transformed character comes at the cost of temporal discomfort, the price is right. The price is right. And I think this is a common misunderstanding because I think we approach and we say, well, if fasting won't make God answer my prayers, why do it? Why do it? Can I tell you what fasting over the last uh, 2006 to today, what 18 years, over the last 18 years, can I tell you what fasting's done in me? Here's what it's done in me. Fasting has taught me to depend on God, but probably not in the way that you're thinking. Fasting taught me to, to depend on God for peace because I had no comfort-induced peace in my life. Fasting taught me to depend on God for patience because you've never needed patience more than you do when you're hungry. Fasting taught me to depend on God for my joy rather than seeking happiness through sugar rushes, and physical comfort from foods that I enjoy. Fasting taught me to offer people kindness when I didn't feel like I had any to give. Little by little, I started to notice that for me, fasting was fertilizer for the fruit of the Spirit in my life. Fasting was fertilizer for the fruit of the Spirit to grow and develop in my life. And when I noticed impatience flaring up in me, or anger rising in me, there was the Spirit inviting me to submit my feelings to the Lord in prayer. It's kind of like this. Imagine for me, if you will, that you are a beautiful vase, carefully crafted by a master potter. And over time, your vessel, through use and misuse, has become chipped and cracked and broken. And you just kind of turn your angle so that no one can see your your chips and cracks and breaks because you want to appear to be the beautiful vessel that you feel like you ought to be, the beautiful vessel that you were created to be. 
And, and so over time, you've had to kind of glue yourself back together. And, and from a distance, you look all put together. You, you hide your brokenness. The cracks are there, but no one else can see them, right? So here's what fasting does. Fasting is like pouring water in that broken vessel. You increase the internal pressure of the vessel. You apply pressure to the vessel, and what the pressure does is the pressure exposes the cracks. The cracks in your vessel, the cracks in your character, the cracks in your facade, the cracks in your veneer, the cracks in your presentation about who you wish everybody thought that you were. The pressure exposes the cracks. And now, now that your cracks have been exposed, you've got a choice. Do you spill the water, relieve the pressure, hide the brokenness, and persist as you always have? Or do you take your knowledge of the location of these cracks and do you bring them back to the potter? Say, Father, I, I see this in me. I see that I, just, I got really quick-tempered. And I know that your word says that, that is, that's works of the flesh and I don't want to do that. Father, would you make me patient? Father, I, I don't like the way that I spoke to that person. I see this in me. I don't want to be this person. Father, help. Help me, Lord. Strengthen me. Give me a peace that passes understanding. You invite the potter to inspect the damage and to fix those broken areas. The pressure exposes the cracks. And now you invite the potter to address the damage that you might be the beautiful vessel that you were created to be. This is why I've been telling you that if transformed character costs you temporal comfort, the price is right. So what's it worth? What is a transformed character worth? What is Christ-likeness worth? Is it, is it worth discomfort? Is it worth suffering? Is it worth hunger? Is it worth the embarrassment that you'll feel when you get out of pocket and have to go apologize to somebody? That'll be a good gift from God to you when he humbles you enough that you'll actually return to that person and own your sin and tell them that you were wrong and tell them that you're sorry. Is the fruit of the Spirit worth the frustration of hunger? Over these next 40 days, I'm going to invite you into a, a pattern of fasting and prayer. This is something that the, the church has done for hundreds of years. The Lenten season is marked by fasting for the church. We've never done this. I've never brought anything like this to you. I want to invite you into this. And I think it's better than you initially thought that it would be. In just a moment, uh, you're going to receive a piece of paper. It's a fasting guide that we've made uh, to help you identify a fasting pattern that works for you. They're, they're coming down the, the rows right now. You will walk out with one of these today. Uh, I, I want you to have this. I want you to look over this. I want you to prayerfully consider how the Lord might invite you into, maybe for the very first time, a pattern of prayer 
and fasting. Here's what I think. I think if you accept this challenge during this 40-day journey with Jesus, I think you'll find that at the end of this road, you'll be met with transformation. I want you to commit for the next 40 days to some sort of a pattern of fasting. There's an option on this sheet that meets anyone and everyone where they are, but I want you to fast with a specific priority. Because remember I told you, if you don't pair fasting with a priority, if you don't pair fasting with prayer, you're just starving yourself. That's all you're doing. So here's your priority. We're calling it the one. I want you to pray for one person in your sphere of influence for the next 40 days. I want you to commit to building influence in their lives. I want you to get around them. I want you to talk with them. I want you to have deep conversations with them. I hope you invite them into your home. I hope you prepare a meal for them. I hope that if they have a need, you're the first to jump in. And I hope that through a relationship, you learn something about this person that you can consistently bring before the Lord, whether it's their family or their marriage or their kids or their salvation or, or, or their anxiety or their cancer diagnosis. I hope that you learn something about them that you can consistently week by week over the next 40 days, bring before the Lord that they might be the object of your care just as you've been the object of God's care. Christ fasted for 40 days for your benefit. And I'm inviting you to fast for 40 days for theirs. You will benefit too. Here's what I think will happen. If, if you... If you accept this challenge, if you step into this for the next 40 days, I think you'll be uncomfortable. And that'll be a good thing. I think you'll pray more than you normally do. And that will also be a good thing. I think you will make an eternal difference in the life of your one. And I think that will be a beautiful thing. I think there will be stories on the other side of this Lenten season of men and women who came to faith for the very first time because of how the Lord used you in their lives because you took time to separate yourself from material comfort to pursue the Lord on their behalf and he hears those prayers. And I think you'll grow in Christ-likeness. I think you'll grow in a level of concern for someone who's not you. I think you'll grow in Christ-likeness. And if a transformed character costs you temporal comfort, family, the price is right. I think you'll skip more meals than you have in years. I think you'll be hungry, and I think your cracks will be exposed, and I think the Lord will meet you there in your imperfection with his grace and his forgiveness. He'll remind you that he hung on the cross for your imperfections. His perfection hung on a cross to cover yours. He'll meet you there. And I think that in all of it, what you'll find is that through deprivation, you will feel a desperate lack in yourself. You will feel weaker than you've ever felt. You will be keenly aware of the reality that you are not enough and that will be a beautiful gift from God to you. Because as you stare in the mirror, recognizing your inadequacy, you will be met with the inevitable reality that though you are not enough, He is.
He's more than enough. You offer him your five loaves and two fish, he'll feed 5,000. You invite him into your natural, he'll inject it with his super. When you're met with the reality that you are not enough, be reminded, he's more than enough. Let me pray for us. Father, would you meet with your people today? As we weigh through what we might do for these next 40 days, how we might respond to this challenge, Lord, would you lead us? Would you give us strength and courage to step boldly into this space of maybe trying something we've never tried before? God, these are hard things and can be intimidating things, but they're glorious things. You've invited us to submit ourselves in this way that we might be molded and shaped to more closely reflect your image to the world around us. Father, use us in the life of our one. Would you open our hearts and our minds and our eyes to see and realize who you're calling us to pray for and minister to? Father, would you receive great glory from our lives? Lord, as we step away from comfort and strength and as we're met with the inevitable reality that we're not enough. Would you remind our hearts in deep and abiding ways, would you remind us that you are more than enough? We love you, Jesus. We pray this in your name. All God's people agreed.